Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. With me are five of my Black classmates, John Woodford from Ann Arbor, Jerry Secundi from Pasadena, George Jones from Atlanta, Ezra Griffith from New Haven, and Fred Easter from Minneapolis. I am also joined by classmates Jay Pasikoff from Williams College, Hampton Powell from Nashville, Alden Briscoe from Maui, Mason Morford from Freeport, Maine, George Allen from Los Angeles, Bill Collins from Aiken, South Carolina, and Doug Shapiro from Louisville. Our guest is Caleb Scharf. He is Director of Astrobiology at Columbia University in New York, where he teaches and researches the questions surrounding the puzzle of life in the universe. In his new book, The Ascent of Information, Caleb argues that information is in a very real sense alive. All of the data we create, all of our emails, tweets, selfies, AI-generated text and funny cat videos amounts to an aggregate life form. It has goals and needs. It can control our behavior and influence our well-being. It is an organism that has evolved right along with us. Here is Caleb Scharf. Uh, really nice to, to be here and meet everyone. Um, so the book is, there's a lot going on in this book. It is a book about science. I came to this actually from my day job, which is in astrophysics and astrobiology. And one of the things I study is the question of life elsewhere in the universe. And I was trying to come up with a way to quantify the things that are sort of special about humans, or at least we think are special about humans in comparison to the rest of life on the planet. And one of the things that, that came up in thinking about that was the idea that as a species, we do this thing that's kind of unique, or at least we do it to an extent that no other species seems to on the planet, which is we generate <clears throat> and use and propagate all of this information that's not encoded in our genes. It follows us through time. And it's in our books, it's in our art, it's in our language, it's in all the structures that we construct to support all of that. And I ended up calling this the data ohm as a convenience. Uh, data ohm, much like a genome, uh, it's, a, it's a sort of externalized information that exists with us. And so the book is all about exploring that idea, all about presenting a series of arguments in support of seeing our world that way, that seeing our external information as something that can be studied, but also something that we are constantly interacting with, which isn't too much of a reach. I know that we, if I write a letter, I'm interacting with a piece of paper, but I'm also interacting with the, the words that I'm writing in the letter and I can pass that on to someone else and so on. But I wanted to really look at this from a grander perspective. And so in the book, where it, it leads is a number of fairly outrageous sounding proposals about the nature of life, about the nature of us as a species, <clears throat> including the idea that this externalized information, 
this data ohm really isn't just a sort of side effect of us. It's not exactly like what in um, evolutionary biology might be called an extended phenotype. It's actually more akin to a, a living system itself, even though it's built differently than us. It's not built out of uh, biomolecules. It's built in a variety of different ways. And in fact, that we exist in a symbiosis with this thing. Now, it has emerged out of us. That emergence perhaps began 200,000 years ago. It's Homo sapiens was speciated from the other hominid groups that were around then. Uh, and looking at the world this way seems to provide insight to what's happening with our data, with our information. So another part of the book is about just examining our technological world and the extraordinary amount of energy that goes into that, the extraordinary amount of resources that go into supporting all of that. And, you know, I can reel off all sorts of statistics, but just to give you a sense of uh, the scale of our informational world and our data today. So we generate, as a species, about 2.5 quintillion bytes of data every year, uh, sorry, every day. Um, and that amount is just increasing. So you know, what does that mean? Well, that's about a, a billion gigabytes of data is being produced by us as a species, by all of our computational systems, our sensors, the actions of our cells. Every time we post a video of our, our pet or, or write an email, we're adding to this. And that amount of data is actually more data than represented by every word ever spoken by every human being who has ever existed. <laughs> Just to give you a sense of the scale of it, which is mind boggling. And that requires energy to support. And it's constantly growing. And right now, although the amount of electrical energy that we give over to supporting this, this part of the data ohm. I mean, there are also things like traditional books still, but that amount of energy is also growing, although we're getting better at making efficient computers and more and more energy efficient data storage. But it's growing so quickly that potentially within 20 years, just the electricity demands of our external data, all of our stuff in the cloud servers and our computers and so on, that electricity demand could exceed the total amount of electricity that we generate as a species today for everything. So something's going on, or it feels that way. And I think we, part of the book is saying that, is trying to say that you know, we can look at this very parochially, but we can also step back and try to look at this scientifically in the grander scheme of the evolution of life, the evolution of our species, that there's something profound taking place here. And to some extent, it's always been going on for our species and for biological life anyway. I mean, life is about information at some level. It's the information in genes and so on. But the, there is a amplification of that at the moment. And so the book is exploring that, yeah. asking, you know, what's going to happen in the future? So that's a that's a somewhat long-winded, very long-winded <laughs> explanation of, of part of what the ascent of information is about. Caleb, you, you seem to suggest in, in the little blurb I read before we got on the air here that uh, all of this data has a life of its own, so to speak. 
Yeah, so it's that that statement. I mean, it's meant to be somewhat provocative, but it's also it comes from just examining the dynamics of our external information and looking at how it evolves, how it propagates, how it changes over time. And the suggestion is that maybe we're being too narrow-minded in how we think about the phenomena of life itself. So this is something near and dear to my heart as an astrobiologist thinking about life in the universe. You know, there's a, there's a big open question. So life on Earth, biological life, is built out of a, a particular grouping. And I think it's an currently unanswered question is whether you could build it very differently. So when you look at our external information and you start to ask, well, could this be actually the equivalent of a living system? My, my argument or my proposal is that actually, yes, it does look exactly like that. It, it propagates in the world. We are in symbiosis with it. Um, arguably, everything in life is some kind of symbiosis. Um, so you know, we know about us and our microbiome, for example. It's something we've learned about um, in, in recent decades. All the microbes that live with us, and we really cannot exist without them and vice versa. But, you know, at a deeper level still, you might say that genes are in symbiosis with each other, right? No single gene can you know, create an entire organism, as far as we know, and um, succeed in the world. But together, genes can make organisms, that are these vehicles that carry them through time and so on. So, you know, so it's a really good question. So my, my proposal in the book, and I try to explore it and, you know, give supporting evidence for this is that, yeah, actually that data ohm is best thought of as a, a living system. It's not built the way we are. It's completely dependent on us, but we're also basically completely dependent on it. And that's not so unusual in what we know about the nature of life here on earth and perhaps, you know, maybe conceivably elsewhere. Um, so, you know, it routes a lot of its function through us, right? We, are, we help it replicate, we help sustain it, we help correct its mutations and errors sometimes. But we also see that, like in any symbiosis, sometimes the interests of the two parties in symbiosis are not perfectly aligned, right? There's an advantage to working together, but your individual interests may differ. And so I would suggest that things like these energy demands of our data own, these, these uh, enormous energy and resource demands of our informational world are clearly detrimental to the environment that we live in as biological things, but they're great for this data. Own. And so that would be an example of, yeah, this is how symbiosis works, right? Interests are not always perfectly aligned. So yeah, so there's no one succinct sort of piece of, you know, little evidence that, that guarantees this to be true, but I try to assemble um, a number of arguments in support of that idea and suggest that it's just, even if you don't buy into the idea that it's an ultimate living system, looking at it that way may be useful, may help us better understand things about you know, all the crazy stuff that's going on in our world and why we're actually doing what we're doing. Um, beyond just the usual um, sort of parochial examination of society and politics and, and so on. Jerry. Thank you. 
Caleb, I'm not a scientist. Uh, regretfully, I'm a lawyer. So this may be a, a very silly question, but are you leading us down the path that this is basically becomes artificial intelligence with a life of its own uh, that can diverge from our own lives? Hmm. Yeah, great question. Um, I would consider, you know, artificial intelligence and things like machine learning as a subset of this grander thing. Uh, it isn't, you know, one doesn't have to invoke so-called intelligence in any of this. This data ohm, it does what it does, right? Just like biological life does what it does, right? The dirty secret of Darwinian evolution is there's no plan. It's not aiming at anything. It's just that what works survives and that's what we seek through time. Um, and so I think for the data ohm, I would say that you know, things like AI and machine learning, they're sort of a subset. They're, they're a present, shall we say, um, emergent phenomena, their kind of development that's taking place at the moment. One of the, the points that I explore in the book is whether that data, um, whether the machines and AI and things like that could do away with us, right? just, just get rid of us. And actually I, I'd land on a more, what I think is a more hopeful note, which is that you know, thus far, there are certain things about AI and machines that nobody has cracked the problem of. And those include things like um, what's called open-endedness. And that is the constant generation of novelty of ideas. Um, and you know, humans are really good at this, right? We can not only solve problems, we can think of the next problem to solve. No machine has yet managed to do that. And it's not clear that machines will be, that we know how to make machines capable of doing that. That may be a unique thing for biological life, this sort of ability to imagine, to dream, to, to you know, produce endless novelty. So I, I suggest in the book that, you know, even if the machine world rises around us, it may want to keep us around <laughs> because we provide something useful. We provide something that machines might not be able to do, and that's to constantly come up with novelty, um, new ideas, you know, imaginative leaps. Um, so, yeah, I, I, if that gets to your question. <laughs> Uh, the, your whole concept here, Caleb, is kind of like a uh, Rorschach. Uh, Jerry brought one thing to it. Uh, uh, what I'm bringing to it is the idea of the Akashic field that Nikola Tesla had and Einstein and Swami Viva, I can't pronounce his name, Viva Ankanda, uh, uh, with, the, with the idea that it, it's surrounding us and that it stays there and it's kind of timeless and, and like for example psychics can go into a house where a murder has happened and some of them can can pick pick stuff up from the akashic field apparently apparently uh, uh i i haven't learned how to access it myself but uh uh do you think of the akashic field at all when you when you're talking about the datum well, I have to say it's, it's, it's a concept I've not heard of before. Um, maybe just because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a parochial little scientist. Um, but, so is Tesla. <laughs> well, yeah, nothing too parochial about Tesla. I think he was, he thought big and wide. Um, 
No, I, you know, not so much. I, th I think, you know, as a scientist, I tend to veer away from concepts that claim that they can completely explain sort of everything. And it sounds like that may be one of those concepts, um, or perhaps not. You're, <laughs> you can correct me. What I will say, though, is, you know, at a deeper level, and again, I explore this a little bit in the book, a number of physicists uh, over, over time have thought, physicists and computer scientists and mathematicians have thought more deeply about what we really mean by information and the connection of information, not just to you know, the stuff we do as humans, but to deep physical concepts in things like quantum mechanics. So the interesting thing about quantum mechanics and our understanding of the world at the subatomic and quantum level is that things are ill-defined until they're not. I have a two-part question. Can you Go hear me? Yeah, yeah sure. Two-part question. The first is how much of the what a kajillion bytes of information a day that's produced is actually useful and how much of it is garbage? And given that the generation of information itself obviously takes energy, is that information, some of which, for example, is about things like climate change itself contributing to an uninhabitable Earth? Wow, great question. <laughs> yeah, and I think a spot on point. Um, so, so two things to that. I'll start with your last point. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and people are starting to worry about this. So when we run something like a high dimensional climate model of the Earth, I do this with colleagues, not for the Earth, but for other planets. Uh, it goes onto a supercomputer somewhere. It chews through power to run. It takes it may take days or weeks to run a um, high-end supercomputer model of, of Earth's climate system. And actually, yeah, we kind of suddenly woken up to the fact that, ironically, the energy that we're putting into running that climate si simulation to tell us about all the bad things that are coming down the line for us is itself contributing at some level to, to uh, climate change. Uh, there's a lot of discussion on that that is now starting to happen in science um, in terms of the energy use that we, you know, right? We are computer models. Everybody models things on the computer these days that requires energy. The chips that we're using have required enormous resources to produce. They're highly structured forms of matter, so they're kind of pushing against the natural flow of entropy in the world. So it takes an awful lot of energy to build all of these devices. Um, <clears throat> so absolutely, uh, you know, and we look at things like Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies. Those are designed on purpose to be energy hogs, right? The, the whole reason they work as a um, you know, unfalsifiable um, you know, you cannot, um, what's the word? Oh, my brain. <laughs> you cannot forge those currencies very easily because of the sheer amount of computing effort that goes into to forming um, the, the sort of the, the algorithmic puzzles in the first place, which means they take enormous amounts of energy. To come back to your first point about, yeah, the, the 2.5 quintillion bytes of new data being generated every day by our species, yeah, how much of that is garbage? It's a good question. A lot of it is undoubtedly of limited use. But then we get into some really interesting questions about you know, what is meaningful information? And actually there, 
there are some really interesting ideas that come out of what's called information theory, which is a mathematical framework for you know, understanding the actual informational content of data, but then relating that to things that matter in the world. And in the end, you know, one way to look at it comes down to uh, Darwinian selection and information that is meaningful in terms of survival. Now, it's quite hard to see all of that when we filter through our own information, but arguably, you know, on a given day, all the videos from, you know, TikTok influencers on how to braid your hair or something uh, have a different impact on human survival than the output of cancer research or climate modeling. So there's clearly a, a grade of information in the world. And so, but we don't think about sort of the value of information in that way, or just right now, it's just a runaway process, right? We're just churning it out. And in fact, as we know, there are corporations who, for whom it is enormously beneficial to continue to encourage us to participate with um, their software, to generate more and more data and so on, but it's of arguably limited use. It's an interesting thought that we talk about monitoring our carbon footprint and trying to do things in a carbon neutral way and to you know modify how we go about our our business in that sense but we tend not to think about our generation of information in the same way and perhaps we should and again in the book this is an argument i try to make that you know, perhaps we should be aware of our informational footprint in the world and ask ourselves, you know, do I really need to, you know, post that picture of my lunch <laughs> on Facebook? Um, because of all the machinery that is behind that, all the machinery that is, is expending energy and resources just to support that. Um, so, yeah, well, how we deal with this, I don't know. Um, you could imagine a sort of agricultural model for information, or you could imagine uh, a sort of uh, more of a biological model for how we manage information, much like we think about our own personal health. Maybe we should think about the health of the information that we as individuals generate and put out into the world, but also all the information out there. It's kind of an interesting, interesting, interesting problem, interesting puzzle, a different way of looking at the world. So what happens if nothing is done? I mean, if we just keep on keeping on? <laughs> Good question. Well, you know, so if you talk to computer scientists and engineers, their typical answer is that we're getting much better at being energy efficient and things like computation and things like data storage. And that is demonstrably true. Uh, even these enormous data servers around the world, some of the largest in the world are actually in Inner Mongolia at the moment, and they cover hundreds of acres. Uh, in Inner Mongolia, in a sort of dry, arid climate, it's a good place for putting lots of computing equipment. It is getting more efficient, but what is much harder to evaluate is whether that increased efficiency is actually keeping pace, growth in our production and utilization of, of data and information. So it kind of depends on who you talk to, but I've seen projections that are pretty firm about no matter Unless we, unless we make a sort of million or billion fold improvement in the efficiency of our computing and data storage systems within the next decade, you know, as I mentioned before, the statistic of 
you know, the total amount of electrical power that we generate today is what's going to be necessary simply to support our informational world in 10 to 20 years' time. And it's not clear that anything much is going to thwart that. And, and that assumes business as usual. And of course, then we get things like cryptocurrency suddenly happening, Bitcoin. I think right now, Bitcoin, the estimates I've seen, the Bitcoin energy use is something of the order of the equivalent of six to seven nuclear power stations worth of power of energy <clears throat> is having to go to support um, Bitcoin mining and, and transactions. So, you know, it wouldn't take much more than that to really overwhelm us. And I, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> it's a great question. Bill, Bill. I have a, a couple of points, perhaps tangential, but I don't know about that. Um, first of all, I'll observe that it's lot, it uses much less energy for us to meet here on Zoom than it would for us to travel to meet physically together. True. Okay. And uh, likewise, I think it takes a good deal less energy to exchange an email with somebody than it does to print a page and mail it to them physically. So that's a comment. Um, then the other thing, uh, there's a guy named Pierre Taillard de Chardin, who was a Jesuit priest and a paleontologist who died in about 1955. And he was a an paleontologist and he, and he gave a lot of thought to evolution. And one thing that he observes is that evolution seems to move in the direction of greater complexification. I don't know, have you read Chardin? I, I believe I know of him. He's yeah, is he one of the people who put forward this idea of the new sphere. Yes, that's what I was yeah. coming to, the new sphere, that we start with this round earth, the geosphere, and then the uh, hydrosphere and the atmosphere and the biosphere all closing in on itself and at each stage of closing in on itself, it becomes more complicated. And finally, the newest sphere, which is the sphere of thought, the thinking sphere, which humanity is, and perhaps this, this um, new organism that you suggest is perhaps something like that also. So just a couple of comments that uh, might be of interest. You might want to look up Chardin and perhaps read one of his, I read his book, The Phenomenon of Man some time ago, which lays out oh. this whole idea. And it's kind of an overall high level view of, of evolution. Yeah, and actually I, I do talk about it in, in my book. And, and it, was, um, it was the geologist Vedansky, I think, who also worked with the person you're talking about and, and further developed some of the ideas. Um, yeah, I mean, it was really insightful and it came well before people talked about things like the technosphere and our present discussion and, and indeed my idea of the datome. Yeah, that was, it was really pioneering and stuff. Chardin died in 1955, long before what we're talking about here came to exist. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and uh, yes, your, I, remind me your earlier comment, there was something I wanted to respond to. <laughs> I commented what? that it took less energy for us to meet mm. together here by Zoom than it would for us all to travel together. So I, think, I think it takes less energy to send an email to somebody than it would to write it on a piece of paper, put it in an envelope and stamp it and mail it. So, so superficially, I would agree with that. However, and I don't actually know the full answer to this, my, 
I, what I would be interested to know is, you know, so our ability to have the Zoom conversation, our ability to send an email rests on an enormous infrastructure. And the question would be, you know, in the moment, I agree, right? The amount of energy going into the exchange between all of us here, we're separated by thousands of miles altogether. It's, it's right, it's remarkable. And, and in terms of its total uh, instantaneous energy use, it may not be that much, but it can only happen because of this enormous infrastructure that is in place and has had to be put into place and built and use, utilizing resources, utilizing electricity. And it's not switched off when we, when we exit our Zoom call. It doesn't go away. Um, so I don't know, actually. I mean, I think intuitively I would agree that it feels like if I just write a note on a piece of paper that may be more energetically um, demanding. It's also got to be physically moved through the world. That piece of paper had to be manufactured in the first place. The inks had to be manufactured in the first place. But I don't know. Um, and I think this, this is an interesting question is... And it's the same kind of question, same kind of challenge that comes up when people try to look at carbon burden in the world, right? You know, is it better to buy an EV car than to continue to drive my 25-year-old, you know, gas car? You know, which really, in the moment, gives you the the, the better carbon footprint. Um, so it's a, yeah, so it's a really interesting point. I, you know, your comment is terrific. Um, I don't, I don't quite know which way, I, I don't have a good intuition. I suspect it could go either way in terms of energy use. Mm -hmm. And I'll just, I'll, one other thing occurred to me, when we talk about increasing complexity in the, in the evolutionary oh. process, mm -hmm. it is kind of counter second law of thermodynamics. That is to say, it takes an enormous amount of energy to evolve a human being. It's yeah, and actually, I wanted to speak to you of that comment. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, this idea of ever-increasing complexity is really interesting. Um, you know, the idea that things get more and more complex, that, that life tends to evolve to greater complexity, you know, it clearly does when it can, I think. I mean, not always, right? Circumstances may not always allow it. And one of the ideas that many people currently discuss about why that might be is actually to do with information processing. So more complex organisms can, in a sense, process more information about the world around them. And if you can process more information about the world around them, there may be an evolutionary advantage. You can make better predictions. You can evaluate risk more successfully and therefore up your odds of surviving into the future or your genes surviving into the future. So there's actually, there's some mathematical frameworks talking about this that suggests that when it can, although it's energetically demanding, greater complexity in living systems, mm -hmm. one of the clear advantages of that is to do with information. It's about you know, sensory input, processing that information and using it to make uh, better decisions. Mm. Mason. Uh, Caleb, just getting back to one of your earlier uh interest uh, life outside our own uh, our own uh, uh, universe here you talk about our data footprint are we looking for or, or would we able would we be able to detect a data footprint of a species that isn't pretty close to our own 
Great question. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so in my field, astrobiology, one subset of that. So we're, you know, as a field, one of the things we do is look for or try to understand how we would look for so-called biosignatures. So life changes the environment around it, right? The oxygen we're breathing comes from other living organisms on earth. That's a great example of a fingerprint of a certain kind of biosphere on earth. <clears throat> so in astronomy and astrobiology, it's one of the things we're interested in looking for is just chemical signatures of life on other planets. But on top of that, yeah, yeah it's this question and, and the old fashioned term is SETI, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. These days that's sort of bundled together into what we call the search for techno signatures. And so it's exactly as you, as you say, looking for sort of the imprint of data, the imprint of a data ohm, the imprint of you know, a restructuring, the way I would put it is a restructuring of matter with intention that goes beyond just survival, right? I mean, a certain amount of technology and, and um, data is of course you know, intrinsic to the survival of a species, but you know, going, you know, stepping beyond that, expanding and, and creating greater complexity in the environment and so on. So yeah, so one of the ideas that I'm actually thinking about outside of the book is the application of this idea of the data to our search for technosignatures out in the universe. So a technosignature could be looking for you know, constellations of artificial satellites around an alien world, or it could be looking for science signatures of energy use in a very specific way that is not the way we think energy is used by pure biology. Um, so for example, all of our machine technology on earth has intrinsic inefficiencies because of thermodynamics and entropy. And so there is a, an infrared glow from the earth that sits on top of what would be there otherwise. And it's from you know, every piece of machinery that we have, right? <laughs> Sends out you know, useless energy uh, results from that um, high entropy energy, sort of infrared energy. And so astronomers have talked about idea of looking for specific infrared signatures that can only be explained through the use of technology as we understand it. So, yeah, so one of the things I'm very interested in is whether, you know, when we look for biosignatures in the universe, I would argue we're looking for signs of genomes. I think we're looking for the signs of, of biology as we understand it. When we look for technosignatures, I would argue we're actually looking for signs of data ohms, looking for the signs of large-scale restructuring of the world in service of information, which is probably in support of a biological counterpart, um, but it also has its own thing going on. It's got its own dynamics going on. So it's, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And it's kind of, uh, you know, well, I hate to say cutting edge, but it's definitely the frontier of how we think about looking for life in the universe. All right, Doug. Doug. Yes. Um, so my understanding of how scientific research is conducted is that one starts out with uh, some kind of a question. And in order to figure out what kinds of data you can use to answer that question, the question has to be um, uh, kind of reframed 
and refined and then refined again and again until eventually you reach a point <clears throat> which you can see uh, what sort of method you need to apply in order to generate very specific kind of data that will uh, answer the question or resolve the hypothesis. And um, uh, this kind of process seems to be very different from the sort of intellectual approach that you've been taking, which to me sounds much more like a kind of a philosophical way of uh, looking at the, the world around us and ourselves and so forth than it is of actually conducting actual scientific research. So my question is, how do you know where to look in order to find the information that you've used in order to put together your ideas? So, so I should say that, you know, writing a, you know, writing a book like this is one way, one mechanism that I use to kind of pull together these ideas that are more nebulous. Right. So a lot of what I'm talking about, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost philosophical. Um, it's toying with ideas that aren't fully focused yet. So, you know, just, just to say that, that, you know, writing a book like this and, and the discussion that we're having this afternoon, absolutely. It, it's a little bit nebulous. It's kind of going in lots of different directions, but it's an exploration. So I see it as one part of a, a sequence of things uh, that leads to the kind of uh, very focused, specific scientific inquiries that, that you're talking about. So for example, right now I'm actively thinking about sort of evidence-based approaches that I could apply to some of these ideas that sound a little bit out there and they're deliberately provocative. So for example, I, I've said, you know, maybe our data home is best thought of as an alternate living system here on earth. And so a question would be, can we, could we apply some of the analytic tools that we have to study you know, the existence of organisms on earth to deduce whether or not there are living things in some sample of soil or, or water or whatever? Could we apply some of those analytic tools to our data home, to the information world around us to see what it says? You know, is there anything in our, our toolbox that would actually sort of support this somewhat outrageous sounding hypothesis that there's an alternate living system here on, on earth. Uh, so for me, it's, it's a question of drilling down. You know, sometimes, sometimes you have to have these almost philosophical ideas and then you try to drill through that to get closer and closer to so these really actionable items where you can yeah, run an experiment or ask a very specific question, figure out what, what data you would need um, to establish certain things. Um, so for example, the, the use of energy by our data ohm on the planet is also interesting because that in a sense is akin to metabolism. If, I'm, if the idea is, has any validity. So we can think about the way metabolism works. And for example, we know about the, there are certain scaling laws, relationships between uh, metabolic energy use and the mass of organisms. So the very famous scaling laws, the so-called three-quarter power law between uh, energy use of things all the way down to single-celled microbes up to things like elephants and whales, that there seems to be a relationship between 
total metabolic energy use or resting metabolism energy use and the mass of organisms. We don't quite understand why that is. There've been proposals for that that include uh, a variety of mathematical models, even down to things like the nature of circulation systems, circulatory systems. They have a sort of fractal nature to them and that may help explain this. So, um, but that's an example of a property that we see across biological organisms that we might also now go and look for in our machine world, if you will. And actually people have done that to some extent. There are studies, really beautiful work done by people at the Santa Fe Institute in New Mexico on how cities can look a lot like biological organisms and how they function, how energy ebbs and flows and how um, the contents of those cities ebb, ebb and flow. So again, that's a kind of long-winded <laughs> semi-response to your question. Um, but yeah, no, I, and it concerns me, right? I, it's fun to have ideas and writing a popular science book, you wanna have fun, right? You want to explore ideas, you want to get people thinking. Um, but if there's something deeper there, then it it's, takes a lot more effort to drill into that and come up with testable, truly testable hypotheses. Mm. Ezra, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking that uh, I, I agree with the previous questioner that you 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 are in the area of the philosophy of science. At least, at least I put you there in order to make it more comprehensible to me. But it, and then it leads me to to um, to think along the traditional lines I I, I would use, and I'd ask. Um, so is there is there an ethics that's that's related to to this structure that you're creating for us to contemplate? Is there is there a certain kind of morality that's um, that, that that helps you in the work? And then the second question I had. It, because it has to do with the, the, the fluidity of the structure in my head when I try to think of what you've said. So scientists like you and philosophers of science like you, um, in, in, in Russia, for example, in the Soviet system, what, what would they be saying or thinking as they interact with you and what would they be thinking about? In other words, how, given their given their political, economic, and so on structures uh, that are, and their interests that are inimical to, to, to those of the Western world where you are operating in, I mean, how would they be thinking about, well, how the hell can I use this to gain an advantage in the world that I'm trying to create and my sense of, of, of dominance in the world? And that I, I am, I'm asking because I don't quite understand the application of your your philosophical reflections and I'd, I'd like you to stay a little bit more so I can I yeah. can kind of grasp it um, are my questions making sense to you they are and they're very challenging <laughs> um, you know as a as a scientist you know and many scientists we we tend to avoid questions of ethics and certainly in the physical sciences i mean obviously in medicine and so on it's a slightly different um slightly different situation um but in in physics and the, the um, physical sciences it's it's different but you know i mean you know as you were talking one thing 
struck me, and I think it's a very interesting point that, yeah, suppose, yeah, suppose I was in the former Soviet Union, right, and fully immersed in that worldview. Um, my interpretation of these ideas would undoubtedly be somewhat different. Right. Um, right. Because it's sort of, right, the, the great machine, the great force of, you know, knowledge and you know, manipulating the world into a certain form. Um, so that's one, one, one reaction. Yeah. I, you know, so. <clears throat> well, but you can't. Yeah, can, can, we, can, we, can we dialogue a second? Maybe, maybe dialogue a second. So because I, I following that comment, um, the driving question for for people like me is so 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 how can it be used, and how can it be used? Uh, automatically raises the question then: uh, uh, Is it going to do something that that makes us interested in in thinking about the ethics of it? And, and what 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 is a, a, a relative practical morality in the use of it? I'm just trying. Yeah, to try. um, yeah. I mean, it feels like a very big, <laughs> big topic. A big. Well, well, topic. well, uh, well. All right. So let me let me let me but, sharpen it by making it smaller. What, what I mean in in my specialist subspecialty area, we are interested in the generation of information. It, it, but we are also interested in keeping a certain type or class of the information um, private. So we're preoccupied with the notion of um, how can it be used in ways that injure us. That's at the heart of generating uh, biomedical information. I mean, I'm sure you all must talk about that. So because we don't want biomedical information because there's an aspect of it that is personalized. We don't want it misused by others. And, and as you think about, uh, about your expression, the data ohm, and the more you analogize it to a, a sort of human or humanoid structure, the question then is who can, who can be hurt by the generation of this information? And are you all thinking about that um, and and, yeah. and and as as we think about it in the biomedical field, it's particularly problematic because we keep we keep promising people that we will keep their biomedical information private. And the more you all think and come up with these ideas, it's perfectly clear to us now in 2021 that we cannot control it and we cannot keep it private. And so 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 the more you analogize it to this sort of humanoid structure. Um, are, are, you, are you putting up walls to, to sort of stop its misuse? And do you, yeah. help, me, help me feel comfortable that you, <laughs> you, are, you are all are not in essence. If you yeah. were in, in Russia, I would think of you, well, there must be a terrorist group thinking about how they, how they can put all this together so that they can dominate other spheres of, uh, of information in other countries. I mean, that's, that's a natural terrorist use for this idea, isn't it? I completely agree with what you're saying that, you know, there's a danger that someone turns around if they take this seriously and uses it either, I guess in the mildest case, although it's still very serious as a justification, right? To say, well, 
you know, so this data ohm basically has a life of its own. So the fact that your medical information is now being shared across continents is not really our fault, right? And you should accept it because it's part of this, this thing that's going on. Um, I would hope that isn't a direction people would take any with any of this. And again, I feel that I'm very much an observer. One thing I do think about and came up for me when I was thinking about this and, and doing all the research for the book and, and working it through <clears throat> was that actually, for me, a bigger issue, even than sort of individual data privacy, although clearly that's super important, is data inequity. So roughly half the human population, 3.8 billion people, do not have access to sort of high-speed internet connectivity, right? 3.8 billion people could not do what we're doing right now. Plus something like 20% of the adult human population on this planet is functionally illiterate, which also limits their interaction with the data own if you look at the world that way. And arguably, well, I would argue that you know, the part of the reason the data home exists is the extraordinary evolutionary advantage it gives our species or has given our species in terms of capacity to expand and sustain things and so on, even though there are also the, the flip side to that, which is this symbiotic pull towards just the data, not caring about our planetary environment. But, but that means that, you know, 20%, so half the human population can't do what we're doing right now. 20% of the human population, uh, adult human population is functionally illiterate. And so their interaction with the information world is much more restricted. Jay is the other scientist on the call, Jay Pasikov. And how are you? Yes, you here thinking? I am. What are you thinking, Jay? What's, your, what's on your mind? Well, I'm, I'm uh, currently upset by a proposal by the new head of our environmental science um, uh, section uh, at Williams College, uh, who has a PhD from Yale in quote, environmental justice, uh, talking about uh, cutting back in air travel. And I'm trying to balance that with advantages of people getting together and scientists inventing new things, uh, Caleb, uh, with whom I've corresponded, I guess, off and on for 20 years in a minor way. Um, as, uh, so I'm particularly glad to, to see him today. I don't think I've ever seen your face before. Um, uh, so, uh, but you made some comments about the uh, use of, uh, of email, uh, not to mention Bitcoin, but, but just correspondent. And the difficult question is how much energy do we really use in writing a letter and putting a stamp and having trucks go around or trading in your 25-year-old car. Um, so I'm trying to make a case that, that there are advantages in, um, in, in our getting together. Of my, my career involves eclipses all over the world. So I'm, I'm more involved with travel than some other people. But anyway, so I'm interested in, in Caleb's uh, general views on this subject. Right, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of discussion in science at the moment about do we really need to go to all these conferences, get plane tickets every summer to go to conferences and meet up around the world and so on. And um, yeah, my feeling is you know, clearly the pandemic has pushed us into a scenario where we don't get to do that. So it's all 
electronic, we're looking down a screen, we're trying to interact with each other. I find it vastly more inefficient to do things that way. Um, you know, it's extraordinary how efficient it is to sit in a room with someone in terms of the exchange of ideas, reading body language, right? I mean, that's, we've evolved to be really good at that. <laughs> and when you, when you limit that, when you filter that, things become vastly less efficient. And I certainly learned during teaching, I've been teaching during the pandemic, it's all been online. And at first I thought, well, this won't be so bad, right? I can prepare everything, then we just go online, I'll tell the students, I'll give my lecture, it'll just be like normal. And every time I get through about 70% of what I thought I would get through in a given class. And I just don't know why. And I can only guess that it is that there are inherent inefficiencies in not being in the same physical space. Um, inherent inefficiencies in information transmission, just to bring it back to the, the topic, that are quite hard to quantify. Um, I still don't quite understand. I mean, I, I thought- And you're not getting I, feedback. Yeah, I think, I think that's a lot of it. And a lot of that feedback is unspoken. If you're standing in front of a classroom, you can read people's faces, you can read their body language, and it tells you, you know, whether you need to repeat something or you know, whether you know, you've said something in a way that, that works well. And you lose that online, I find. Well, I think it's possible that, that you're going through a new evolution of something that we're all trying to sort of reach, reach out to and we're having trouble putting our uh, hands around. Like, like I'm, I'm thinking about like, this is like Darwin with evolution, but this is a different form of, uh, of evolution. And we're having trouble spelling out even what the data ohm is. Well, listen, folks, we've been talking for about an hour and two, an hour and uh, 20 minutes. And uh, we want to thank you. Thank you, Caleb, for coming on. It was really enjoyable, interesting. Well, this was a lot of fun. I was, I was, yeah, I'd love to be in a room with all of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right, right. All right. Well, thank you so much. The book is titled The Ascent of Information, and the author is Caleb Sharp. That's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.